Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. My guests today are Russell and Sasha, the founders of Coscula, an Australian furniture design and lifestyle brand. You may have visited their incredible retail space in Sydney's Rosebury, or checked out their social media, or read about their social enterprise work with the Australian Indigenous community. I'm fascinated by their personal story and their business, which is a great example of a brand with purpose. Welcome, Sasha and Russell. You guys started out about 20 years ago, but he had a major turning point back in 2012. Can you tell me about it? It was quite an interesting time um, and really was a turning point in the sense that it sort of rapidly accelerated the development of the company and also its accessibility, I guess, to um, a person on the street. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, we'd um, been working out of studio spaces um, in Surrey Hills and we decided to really propel the brand forward by um, creating a retail space in a 2,000 square metre, 100-year-old warehouse in Rosebury. Which was an interesting time because people said, Rosebury, where's that? Mm -hmm. Never heard of it. And they also said that retail was dead. (laughs) Same as when we first started the business in 2000, when everyone said to manufacture offshore and that the manufacturing industry was dying. We were told the same thing about retail, but decided to embark on this massive sort of journey. And... Interestingly, I think it sort of paid off. What it showed is that retail was dead for retailers who were doing the same old boring sort of stuff. Um, But if you could really offer an amazing experience to a customer, um, that they would respond to that. So, and I think coupled with that was sort of the advent of, um, for us, probably a greater digital presence, which is still really under development. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I I know that when you guys made that move, I remember you you kind of reached out to me and said, you know, would I be interested in renting some space there? <laughs> and it might, I also felt like, oh, this is a bit further out. This is a bit kind of slightly uh, not in the area maybe we should be. But you guys obviously, I mean, do you think it was, how much of it was actually planned? The, you knew what you're getting yourself in for. You knew what it would become versus <laughs> let's just do it and see how we go. I think it was a bit of both. Like we spent nine months trying to find a new space and Look, we had a sort of a radius, I guess, um, and maybe we didn't have a perfectly documented list, like set of criteria, but there was definitely a feeling we had when we walked into that space um, and into that area. So one of the things that's really interesting about it is although it was on the um, sort of industrial fringe of Sydney at the time, Um, It has huge paper bark trees and one block behind that line the streets and one block behind are all these little single level dwellings that um, are still owned by the people who owned the houses when the suburb was developed. And they're all generally um, European migrants. They've got all their fruit trees and veggie patches and things in their gardens. And I think there was something about that that made it quite special. Plus we were, it was one of those rare opportunities when there was actually a beautiful building with some architectural heritage that developers hadn't got a hold of to try and sort of make um, new old. Um, So it was like this beautiful raw shell um, that had been vacant for three years when we found it. 
it was it was a scary time. Like it was either make <laughs> or break type thing, you know. And this was stepping out of our comfort zone and putting everything on the line. And I think uh, the building owners sort of couldn't understand why we were taking out car parks to put in a garden. <laughs> People could go out and sit and they found that very strange. Yeah. And we were like, no, 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 build it and they will come. So we wanted people to come, have beautiful food, move into the space, have a look at the art gallery, book a workshop and basically enjoy the, the surroundings. There's an incredible energy when you walk into into your space. And I was down there the other day on, on Saturday buying some uh, pots for my plants. <laughs> which I told you about later, I fell down the stairs and broke them all, but that's another story altogether. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah, they're beautiful. Um, but the, the energy that's in, in that space, and I obviously the, you, you've added um, a food offer too as well. I know that there was Kitchen by Mike uh, originally, and then now there's Three Blue Ducks. That's quite a, that's incredible buzz. Mm. And you walk in there and you just feel, I feel as a designer too, I just feel that feeling of it's light, it's bright, design everywhere you look. And it feels like very optimistic. It feels like, I know when Russell, when you come into the studio, sometimes you, you, you go, well, I talk about things you want to do. You go, yeah, you can do this. You can do that. How about this? How about that? And there's this kind of constant idea flow. And I feel like that space kind of, you, you've captured that really, really well. And I think that it's more than retail. It's, it's, it's just that. It's a complete experience, I think. Yeah, it's, it's interesting wonderful. because we have AMP and Len Lease and people like that come in and they're always looking around and going, what are, what are they doing out here that's different to what we're trying to do in our towers and our retail spaces and things and just seems to work out here. And we get a lot of people who are traveling overseas or come in from overseas and they'll come in just to buy their gifts and their little pieces and then they'll jump on the flight and go, you know, so it's, they don't necessarily need to go to the city or what's also happening is people are flying in from other states and they're meeting there as a destination zone because it's yeah. near the airport they don't need to go all the way into the city yeah, yeah. no I, I think that it's it's a bit like you know when uh, is it victor churchill yeah meets yeah in willar when that was launched a yeah. few years ago the world knew about it it's bizarre a butcher in willar yeah. <laughs> people were flying from around the world the same things happened with um with your your brand and your space and and once people have experience that, they absolutely refer it to all their mates. And well, I think you guys said about, was it Tyler Brule or was it Wallpaper? Who was it? Monocle said that yeah. it was like the hottest area, upcoming area. Yeah, they came and did Monocle. an interview with us and sort of said, why have you chosen Rosary? This is really interesting. And then all of a sudden they worked out that a lot of fashion people and architects and things were moving out there. Um, and I just recently got back from Stockholm and um, met up with someone from um, working for Microsoft over there. And they were saying, is there some way we can bring a bit of Coscola into Stockholm? Because we're we're looking around the world for different retail outlets and things that they're doing differently. And we want, we want to trial this pilot in Stockholm. So Fantastic. You get a bit of a, a share of that? <laughs> we'll see. What is the kind of the, the longer term plan? I mean, just are you, are you happy with the space you have? Are you happy kind of working out of that space? Because you do, you obviously get a whole bunch of offers there. It's not just one. You're not just designing furniture. You're designing mm. interiors. You're designing experiences. You got products. It's like it's quite a big enterprise. It is, and I think um, in a way, I feel as though organisationally, we're almost at another tipping point. So. In many ways, I almost think the world is our oyster. Like I genuinely believe that our products can stand on a global stage. We've had pieces that have gone into Pinterest and Google in the US. We've got some pieces that have gone to Sky TV in London and projects in Singapore. In my head, um, I guess, you know, I'm sort of starting to think about what the next steps are organisationally. 
Um, and, you know, how would we actually take it to a broader audience? Because I do think um, there is that possibility or on conversely, are Russ and I happy to keep it the way it is and to focus on Australia as our key market? Because you're not just doing it for the money, you're doing it because you believe in design, you believe in adding value to people's lives. So much so that, I mean, a big part of this is social enterprise. How, how, does that, how did that come about? Is that um, something that's always been within you, you want to do good and you want to do the right thing? Yeah, for me, definitely. So I think... Russell's more hard nosed. <laughs> for him, like I feel as though Russell's real passion is design. Like that sort of drives him, probably like you, Vince. You mm -hmm. know, it's in everything he does. For me, I think I was interested to design a company um, and um, to design a company that kind of represented values that I thought were important. So very much a values-driven um, business. I think nowadays um, that idea of creating a business from scratch that does good is sort of um, much more commonplace than when we started 20 yeah. years ago. Um, so we certainly had elements of it um, in our DNA from the beginning. So, you know, commitment to manufacture locally and things when it we could have probably made a lot more money if we'd gone offshore. But for us, it was really important to know what was going into our products and who was making them to make sure that um, we knew that they were being paid fairly um, and were being treated ethically. And environmentally, you know, to have a look at um, what was going into them and also to reduce our environmental footprint rather than shipping products from offshore. But I think for me personally, ever since I was a child, like, you know, when I was little, I had dreams of becoming a doctor and going to work in Africa. So I think that sort of sense that um, whilst I may not have had a totally rosy kind of upbringing, um, I was definitely very privileged to go to a great school and to get a really good education. And I think that sort of drilled into me a feeling that that was a real privilege and that I needed to do something for people other than just myself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it took us a while after we started Coscola to really start to work out um, beyond sort of Australian manufacturing what this would look like for us and how we could use our skill set um, to help other people. And I think when we embarked on that journey with the Yulunga weavers from Elko, um, it was very much done from the perspective that we were in this for the long haul, that we needed to be financially stable. We didn't want to be another kind of group of white people that came into a community full of kind of promise and definitely motivated in the right way, but without the means to actually um, carry the projects through. So it's been pretty rewarding for us, I think, to know that, you know, we've been working with Elko and the women up there for nine years. Like, I think that's... Um, Just for the listeners, where is that? Where exactly is that? In, um, and for me. Far, yeah, far, <laughs> far northeast Arnhem Land. Okay. So right up um, Between off Darwin the coast of Arnhem York. Land. Mm. It's pretty incredible because obviously Indigenous culture and the art uh, is, is definitely... Uh, significant in in the work you managed to weave it literally into <laughs> into what you do, uh, and that really contemporizes it, doesn't it? Yeah, I and think it's interesting to see like your workstations, etc., with indigenous 
Is it is it weaving or is it just paintings? Or weaving. Weaving. Yeah. So, but we very cool. Yeah, we work with a few different. And it's um, true. Sorry, it's interrupt you, but it's true. It's not fake. You haven't copied it. No. I hope. <laughs> no. No. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> no. Made in Thailand. Or whatever. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely not. So yeah, for us, like the motivation was, well, sort of the idea behind it was to create income earning opportunities for the artists. Um, that were independent of any government funding. So they had control over their own destiny and their lives, basically, and could hopefully also to look at ways that we could highlight their cultural practices and the richness of their culture. Yeah, it's really adding value to their to their lives. Yeah. And how do they how do they feel when they see it? In in are they seeing the 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 furniture, et cetera? Well, they get very emotional. So do we. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Recently a couple of the weavers were up in Brisbane and they were at Goma. And the lampshades are through the cafe space there. So they were pretty excited to see all of those. And then um, they're always really proud when they see their work published in magazines and things. Um, and we flew a group down to <coughs> NGV in Melbourne um, for an exhibition down there that we did. And, you know, they were so excited. Some of oh, the women were crying. We were and, all in tears. You know, we were in tears. <laughs> oh, I feel goosebumpy right now. <laughs> but I think that's, that's so admirable that you guys are, are doing that and you're doing it for the right reasons and you're, you know, you're not ripping anybody off. You're doing it for um, adding value all around, which is incredible. By design, I guess. You know? Yes, it's not def- just by definitely chance. by design. But it's interesting because they can see where the work's going now as well, and and we've got so many more new products and and projects that we're working on, and they can see how their weaving is developing and they're pushing each other as well, and it's mm. it's really come a long way. In terms of like, you guys can have a bit of a yin and yang relationship because you know um, Russell's designer, you're actually the the business person. How did that come about? How did you kind of Without going too far back, I don't talk about any kind of saucy stuff, <laughs> but, but how did you kind of work out that, you know, you're actually going to work together and it actually, what, how has it panned out? I mean, you seem, you're both laughing still. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a way, it was kind of fate. So both of us, um, we had a connection through one of my sisters, her boyfriend at the time worked with Russ and they were both architects. So there was sort of that okay. connection. Um, but I think it was sort of fate in the sense that, um, both of us were at a certain point in our careers and we were both ready for a transition. So I was working at the stock exchange. I'd worked on some pretty interesting things in that role, but knew that I was ready to take the next step. And I was either going to go further into corporate, um, sort of land or not. I often make decisions very much based on a gut feel and that if I get do too much sort of analysis and stuff around them, it almost becomes analysis by paralysis. And mm-hmm. generally, I think you almost defer to the analysis because you're not actually sure that it is the right decision. Yeah. Um, like I don't think we spent – we didn't do business cases and stuff when we started. We didn't do them again when we moved to Rosebury. Um, we kind of had an understanding of the numbers. Potentially, you know, we could have potentially done a bit more there. I don't know. So what we did was we were in North Bondi and we were living there together at the time and we went down to the hill overlooking the beach where we used to spend a lot of time. And we were looking out, we looked into each other's eyes and we had $10,000 between us that we could start a business. And we just said, let's go for it. Let's do it. Wow. And then I sort she, of... She sounds a bit flaky after what you just said. <laughs> you, had, you had no business plan. You had no... <laughs> 
<laughs> I know. I'm just trusting my instincts. Totally. No, but I thought you were, I was holding you up here as an incredible businesswoman, but I mean, I'm not saying you're not. Sorry. I'm not saying, I'm not saying <laughs> Thanks, you're not. Vince. I'm not saying you're not. But it's, I was just kind of, it's interesting to hear you say that because you're, you're actually coming about it from more of a creative perspective as mm. a business as well. So you must have that. What we used to find when we first started out was friends ours or people we knew would often come to us and they'd all be talking about wanting to start a business and they would spend, their whole focus was on creating the business plan and not actually doing anything. And I think, um, Russ and my perspective was just do it and see what happens, you know, just get on with it. Like do research, find out what, um, goes into that, but actually try something and you'll know pretty quickly if it's going to succeed or fail. And I think when we started out, we didn't have kids, we didn't have a mortgage, like you have a lot less to lose. And, you know, I definitely remember one big sleepless night, which was at the time when, um, I was going to stop doing consulting work that had been cash flow funding us and cash flow funding the business. Um, and we were tripling our rent sort of in one hit Um, and I remember having sleepless nights and I was looking at something or I'd read a book and, you know, it said when you're faced by a really big fear, you know, how do you manage that? And the advice was just to map out what the worst possible outcome would be. And for us, it was that we failed. And so we would lose some money and we'd lose a bit of face, but at the end of the day, we could have both gone back to doing what we used to do or something along those lines. And neither of us would have been devastated. It wouldn't have had a huge financial impact for either of us. And we didn't have kids to worry about and stuff like that. So it was sort of easier to take a leap. I think that's cool because uh, a lot of people, obviously that's what stops a lot of people doing things in life, you know, is that 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 fear of failure is, can be incredibly confronting and, and you can spend your whole life yeah. with regrets and wishing you you kind of know it could be well you don't know that's the thing yeah you don't know if it's going to work 100 percent, but you know and you're kind of in a way people often wait till they feel like it's is it's mm. more than likely it's going to be a success yeah because people are i guess paralyzed by fear of failure that's but where you the digital that. the digital side is coming into it now as well especially with people in um, rural australia and things who are doing starting businesses where it's not necessarily face-to-face, but it's all that online face. So so just kind of get something out there and, and, and yeah, see, check the response. It. Yeah, Yeah, be agile. Yeah. I do think I do think having a plan is, is good, though. I personally – it's interesting because I've done quite a few things in the past. This might be one of them, the podcast series, <laughs> where you have an idea for something, you start it, and you think, i got a gut feeling it's going to be good. Mm. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. Mm. Um uh, and I've done things in the past where I've lost a whole bunch of money and I've lost, <laughs> you know, an idea which I think is really great. I just haven't worked out a plan of how to bring it to, to the world, you know. Yep. And so it gets parked. Loads of creative ideas often get parked because, you know, it may not be the right moment or may not know how to bring it to life yep. or might need some funding or whatever it might be. Um, but I think if people listening in on this, it's kind of it's, it's cool to go to, to, to have that approach of what you've described of going, got a great idea. You know, what we got to lose? What's the worst case scenario? Mm. Can I live with that? What would that feel like? Yeah. And go, you know, I could actually survive with, I could actually feel okay with that. that You've also got to have the right people around you to make it work. Like for us with manufacturing, having local artisan people that we work with who you explain what you want to do and they're in on it and they're willing to, to take a risk as well. So it's, in some of the, the earlier days, like people were like, no, sorry, you know, we can't do that or, you know, go offshore. It'll be easier. <laughs> so just kind of talking about 
the companies that you're now working for, like you're talking about some major banks and major institutions, you're designing the furniture for them. Are they coming to you for a focus on what designing well-being or what's their kind of brief? Because obviously there's a huge demand for alternative ways of working. That side of the business has really changed over the last few years and um, it's all about collaboration. So we love to work closely with the client maybe the architect or the interior designer. And like, for example, I just flew to um, Denmark to have a meeting with a company that we're working with over there who won a competition in Australia to do a job in Melbourne. Um, and that's where it begins, where it's a true collaboration, where we come in from the start rather than at the end where, you know, a project manager or a builder might have a schedule and then they go, I just want a chair and we want these chairs and that what's the cheapest price you can do it for. If you can't do it for that, I'm going to get these imported ones and whatever. But our business now, people are contacting us to to start and design and collaborate something together. To They've got a problem within the business that isn't working and then we try and work strategically with them to get those pieces and design them and they're Australian made. And that's, that's where our staff get excited. And I think particularly the service-based industries, but not just them, um, realise that workplace is really important both in terms of their branding and in their employee attraction and retention strategy. Um, You know, you'll have another part of the business that's looking at um, activity-based workplace from a financial perspective as well, like that there's no sort of point denying that quite often big corporates are spending, you know, 40% more than they need to on having allocated desks for people who aren't there you know, at least 20 or 40% of the week because they're either in meetings or they're working in the cafe or they're working from home. And that's so, valuable real estate. Um, there's definitely that consideration, but I think for the people we're working with, it's much more likely to be around trying to embody the essence of the brand and to create something new um, and to really look at, you know, how they can empower their staff to work in a really great way and to work in a way that suits the task that they've actually um, and do you get feedback? Do you go back in there later once you're, you know, you've you've supplied all the furniture and people live with it for a bit to see yeah. how it's working? I'll and- give you an example. We worked closely with um, Andrew Pettifer, who runs Arab Australia, um, and he came out from the UK, and we had a, a, a like a well-being style chair that you could lounge in and and that sort of thing. And he said, look, for the for their pilot office, I'm not really sure whether they'll work, but why don't we just put a couple of test ones in and we'll put them over near the window and and then three months later, I went back and I said, oh, Andrew, what's happening with the chairs? And he said, I can't believe it. Like people take their shoes off. They all use it. It's fully booked all the time. We're doing a new office. I want another 15 of these chairs because <laughs> they're just great, you know. And it's also a piece that doesn't have technology in it. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a piece that you can, you can book or you can go to and not use an iPad or an iPhone and not be disturbed. You just read a book or a magazine and you lie down and you just take a bit of time out. And he said, first of all, staff are a little bit worried and, oh, should I be seen reading a book at work? You know, should I have technology in my hand? But he sort of sent out a memo and said, these chairs, we're trialing them and this is what they're used for. And he said, they're used all the time and it's fantastic. Yeah. That's brilliant. Another sort of good example probably is a project we did for Westpac recently in the refurbishment of their Kent Street offices. So um, for that one, um, they'd worked with a local um, Indigenous graphic designer. Um, What they wanted to do was to create these three different 
zones within the office. Um, they're called reflection pods. And the idea of them was to create these sort of places where you could go to that um, weren't exclusively there for you to be doing work necessarily. Um, they look out over the harbour and they're these giant woven structures that um, we developed with the weavers from Elko and from Millingimby. And they're the biggest woven pieces we've ever done in Australia. Yeah, sort of three and a half metres in diameter. Um, and they're these beautiful, quiet sort of zones within a really busy office environment where you can just go and it's an opportunity for you to think a little bit. And it feels completely different because of these canopies that sort of sit over you. Um, and I think it's interesting to see more and more um, of our corporate clients create areas where they actually want people to disconnect from technology and things and um, to give them some space to actually think about things instead of mindlessly <laughs> scrolling through things. Has digital culture turned you into being a global company? Well, yes, I think it has, and it's getting stronger. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh we were recently contacted by Pinterest in San Francisco for their new offices. Um, and they said to their staff, we're going to hand it back to you. And we want to know from you what you want for your offices. So you find the furniture and then we'll, we'll have a look at it and we'll purchase it. So, um, Coscular in Australia kept on coming up on their on their boards and they contacted us and said, oh, can you supply us in San Francisco? And I'm like, how did you find us? We're Coscular in little Rosebury in Sydney, Australia. And, you know, and they said, we found you through Pinterest. So there's a perfect example. Pinterest of, found you through Pinterest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. How good is that? <laughs> yeah. Didn't look very far then, did they? <laughs> <laughs> and it was exciting to cool. be able to, you know, um, produce and, and deliver that for for such a great company. Wow. Was it quite a few pieces? Yeah, it was quite a few. And then we also did um, Google in San Francisco, which was good. So it's interesting. Yeah. Any other work you're doing around the world? Yeah, we just finished a piece um, in the new Noma restaurant um, for Rene Renzeppi, um, and it's hanging over there, and it's a 3D um, woven piece yeah. that's hung on the wall. Was a, We were actually commissioned to do it for Noma when they came here. Um, but there were a whole lot of things going on in the community at the time um, that meant it wasn't ready for the restaurant when it came here. Um, so we were sort of pretty excited to see that it's now hanging um, in Noma in Copenhagen. Wow, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's yes. a little pretty awesome piece of Australian culture. How often culture. do you go there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been Instagram. So oh, has it? It looks mm. fantastic. Yeah. Now Instagram's going to be uh, wanting their offices sorted out too. That's right. <laughs> Thank you both so much for being on the, the podcast today. At the end of every podcast, I ask the question, have you designed your life? And have you both? I think probably not that much to date. So I think um, as I was sort of saying when we first started the business, we just started it to see what would happen. And I feel though – in a sort of in a way as I'm getting older and as our kids are getting older, the idea of being a bit more conscious about the direction of life and actually looking at the kind of life that I want um, is something that I'm thinking about a lot more at the moment. Um, I don't know whether it's to do with the fact that you sort of, you know, think, well, at some point I may you know, not continue doing the same thing that I've been doing, but what do I actually really want to get out of life? Because I don't think anyone wants to live, you know, get 
older and then have a life of regret. So oh, absolutely. How about you, Russ? Oh, there's so much exciting stuff going on. <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. I just think we're still very young and, and we've got so many ideas and so many people coming to us with things to do. It's I haven't designed my life. It's it's being designed and it's a process and we're getting there, but it's it's fantastic. Like it's it's joy it's joy. Oh, that's awesome. It's so cool to hear that. I mean, again, you kind of have a different mm. perspective on it. I'm, I'm a bit in your camp uh, <laughs> at the moment. I'm very optimistic. I'm very full of, you know, passion for doing things. But then I guess it, it is a certain time in your life to go, you know what? What are my priorities for mm. the next 10 years? Because I want to make sure that I don't, I don't you yeah. know, and you, you know, not do what I want to do. Yeah. Or, I think for me as well, like, you know, it seemed as though the first five years of our kids' life seemed to take forever. Yeah, yeah. And then true. all of a sudden... But in a blink of an eye, our oldest son went from kindergarten to year seven. And I just feel like, um, you know, I want to sort of move a bit more consciously through the next <clears throat> phase of their lives and to sort of um, think about, you know, what kind of parent do I want to be? Like, you know, what do I actually want? What gives me fulfillment in life? Um, and just be thinking about that a bit more consciously. Yeah, yeah, I I totally uh, respect that. My kids are twenty, eighteen, and fifteen, and, I, <laughs> yeah. and that just flew by. Yeah, you're saying, well, they're kind of self sufficient now. Yeah, There's a, uh, that gives me more time and space. Yeah, what am I going to do with yeah. it? Yeah, more design. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> more podcasts, more design. Well, I do thank you guys so much for coming today. It was really brilliant to hear uh, the insight of your life. Thank you. Thanks, Vince. Fantastic. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. If you want to know more about how others have designed their lives, check out our website, designyourlife.com.au, or on our social media, at Frost Collective.